This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from history to business and everything in between. And we love telling stories about history. And John D. Rockefeller, well, he feared the temptations of wealth. Yet a visitor once described his estate as the place God would have built if only he'd had the money. This so-called robber baron reshaped America creating an industry centered around the world's most important resource, oil. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't go to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And here's Greg Hengler with a story of John D. Rockefeller. It's the 1870s, and oil is revolutionizing life in America. Crude from the ground is being refined into kerosene, a safe and inexpensive source of light. And that access to light is completely changing the way Americans live. Before kerosene, when the sun went down, darkness ruled. Oil refiner John D. Rockefeller is neither a scientist nor an inventor. What Rockefeller understands is money and markets. It's an expertise that will remake America and then the world. But it was conceived from a need to survive. Born the second among six children in 1839, John D. Rockefeller is raised in a poor Cleveland household. His mother, Elizabeth, is a thrifty, stern, devout Christian with a calm temperament and incredible self-control. Even as a young woman, she is neither given to smiles nor laughter. Here's historians Ron Chernow and Albert Berger. But she had this fatal moment of weakness one day when William Avery Rockefeller appeared on her doorstep peddling cheap trinkets. And he had a little slate that was uh, tied to his buttonhole. And on the slate, he had chalked, I am deaf and dumb. This was part of his con man routine. And Eliza, quite out of character, was immediately smitten by this charming rascal and, in fact, proclaimed in his presence, I'd marry him if he weren't deaf and dumb. He's a scoundrel, apparently an enchanting scoundrel in person. And he certainly enchanted Eliza and apparently enchanted a good many other women too, which is part of being a scoundrel. Folks, that is right, it cures cancer. John's father is in the oil business. Snake oil, that is. He is a philandering con man posing as a doctor roaming upstate New York from a wagon selling quack cancer cures. I'm only here for one day. He's better known as Devil Bill. I may not be back. Here again is Albert Berger. Bill Rockefeller admitted to one of his neighbors, I do business deals with my sons and I always try to cheat them, to make them sharp. Now, John D. did not always like those lessons in business, but he absorbed them. Devil Bill will lend John money, always at the prevailing interest rate, and then deliberately call in the loans without warning to make sure his son has kept reserves. I had a peculiar training in my home, John observes of his childhood, it seemed to be a business training from the beginning. 
Never trust anybody, son. Not even me. Around 1855, he abandons the family. He will reappear throughout their lives every year out of the blue. But he marries a much younger woman who knows him as Dr. William Livingston. They're married for approximately 50 years. Only during the last two years of that 50-year marriage um, does Margaret Allen Livingston learn that for decades she has been married to the father of the richest man in the world. I keep telling people, if a novelist had invented this, people would say it was too preposterous a plot twist and get rid of it. Nobody will believe it. With his father gone, the Rockefellers find refuge in their local Baptist church. One day, the preacher encourages John to make as much money as he can, and then give away as much as he can. It is at this moment, John will later recall, that the financial plan of my life was formed. To fill his father's shoes, John, who's an average student, quits school and gets a job as an assistant bookkeeper and throws himself into it with missionary intensity to help support his mother and siblings. In the meantime, as a poor lowly church clerk, John sweeps and mops the floors, washes windows, teaches a Bible study, gives to a Catholic orphanage, and also gives a man in Cincinnati the money to buy his wife out of slavery. John begins a ledger noting every expenditure, large and small. For him, numbers are sacred. Here's historian Clarice Stas. John Dee's ledger took on a special role of being a kind of conscience, I would say. He recorded his contributions to various causes, to church, every penny that he gave to a poor little girl he saw on the street, to abolitionist causes. And he would use this throughout his life as a way of evaluating himself. The oil industry shapes the 20th century more than any other. And it all begins at a river called Oil Creek in the misty hills of western Pennsylvania. Petroleum oil would seep to its surface. The Seneca Indians used it for war paint and to caulk their canoes. Petroleum, or rock oil, has no commercial value until it's discovered by European settlers. When Seneca, or Seneca, oil came to be used as snake oil. This snake oil is sold as a cure-all elixir for many kinds of physiological problems from the 18th all the way to the 20th centuries. Here's Daniel Jurgen, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Prize, the epic quest for oil, money, and power. Oil was supposed to be able to cure everything from rheumatism to fevers to the sores on the back of your mule. But you could do something else with it. You could refine it into a product called kerosene and make an illuminating oil. And we'll continue with this remarkable story of the life of John D. Rockefeller, who was born on this day in history in 1839. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of John D. Rockefeller. Again, born on this day in history in 1839. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Prior to the distillation discovery of kerosene from crude petroleum in 1852, light had come primarily from the fireplace and dim candles. And the wealthy used expensive sperm whale oil to illuminate their lamps. Here again is Daniel Jurgen. So there was a need in the market for some new source of illumination. And the question was, could this stuff called kerosene, made from this funny product called rock oil, could that become the new illuminant? In 1854, while Americans are flooding into the West to mine their fortunes in the gold rush, samples of black gold are collected in Western Pennsylvania. Tests show that it will make first-class kerosene. If enough rock oil can be found here, it could also be sold cheaply and capture the market for lamp oil. So, in 1857, East Coast businessman George Bissell, known today as the father of the American oil industry, sends Edwin Drake to the muddy little hill town of Titusville, Pennsylvania, 110 miles east of Cleveland, to explore for oil. Two years later, on August 29, 1859, the day Drake receives his final payment in an order to close down the operation, oil bubbles up, and almost overnight, a whole new industry is born, American Petroleum. When the word came out that Drake had struck oil, the cry went up throughout the narrow valleys of western Pennsylvania. The crazy Yankee has struck oil. The crazy Yankee has struck oil. And it was a first great boom. It was like a, a gold rush. Down in Pennsylvania, there is plenty oil, they say. Petroleum, petroleum, we must all have some. The oily fever, don't you see, infects most every live Yankee from north, from east and west. They Again, is Ron Chernow. We have to remember that the oil industry, like the computer industry today, was created by young men, which is often the case with new industries. And after uh, Colonel uh, Edwin Drake struck oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859, there was a wild, rip-roaring, gold-rush atmosphere. It wasn't the kind of thing that, you know, old, settled people rushed off to western Pennsylvania. It was all of these young guys. Then... On April 12, 1861, forces from the southern states fire on Fort Sumner, South Carolina, igniting the Civil War. As the nation is torn apart, two industries expand that will help tie the country back together, oil and rail. Following the Civil War in 1865, over 22,000 miles of railroad track has been laid linking petroleum producers with oil refiners. Here's John D.'s grandson, David Rockefeller, historian Scott Nelson, Daniel Jurgen, and business historian David Cecilia. Grandfather never finished high school and went to Cleveland having borrowed $1,000 from his father to start. Uh, business, paid 9% interest on it, incidentally, and he read about the oil business just beginning and got interested, 
and came to realize that it was uh, a very volatile business at the time. Rockefeller is in the commission business. The commission business means shipping anything that an army needs or anything that a merchant needs in a country store. But by then, the word was getting out that there was this new business called oil, and that's what caught his imagination. Rockefeller was watching the oil business, and he notices that the price of crude is fluctuating in a range from 10 cents at its low to up to $20 a barrel. The young Cleveland entrepreneur realizes oil has the potential to change the world and make him rich in the process. But Rockefeller knows that the chaos of drilling for oil is a gamble filled with uncertainty. And since he doesn't believe in luck, he starts looking for a way to make money from oil without the risky business. Here's H.W. Brands and David Cecilia. He had a mind for efficiency. And there was probably something in him that looked at the production process and saw how wasteful that was. In the first place, you drill wells and they turn up dry. And then you drill wells and they hit a gusher and half the oil would be lost. And that offended his sense of efficiency. Rockefeller looked around at an industry that was rather chaotic and he said, oh, I can do this a lot better. Rockefeller believes that while gamblers drill for oil, businessmen refine it. Whoever could control the refining process could very well have the whole industry. At 26 years old, Rockefeller invests everything he has, about $4,000, into building his first refinery. In return, he plows every penny he earns back into the business. He struggles early on to find an edge in the industry, but as refinery number one grows in size, it gives him tremendous advantages. Here's Harvard Business School professor Alfred Chandler. This was the first refinery, the first modern plant where there were great economies of scale. The unit cost, the cost of getting a gallon of, of uh, a production, a gallon of kerosene, went from six cents a gallon to three cents a gallon. And you couldn't do this without the volume. No one could compete unless they had the same volume. And this was new in the world. This economy of scale increases Rockefeller's bargaining power with the railroads. Here's business historian Joseph Pratt. In this period, transportation costs were a very significant part of total cost. The transportation cost from Cleveland to New York City is roughly equal to a cost of a barrel of oil. So those who understood that and would aggressively pursue uh, lower costs in transportation would have a tremendous competitive advantage. By now, three competing railroad companies are serving Cleveland. This means that Rockefeller can play off one against the other. But getting a special rate or rebate has to be done discreetly because the railroads are common carriers and must charge the same rates to everyone. Here's historian Albert Churella. Neither Rockefeller nor the railroads wanted to keep written records of the rebates that they offered. If other shippers found out about that, they could demand similar rebates and even threaten to go to court. From a strictly economic standpoint, Rockefeller insists that bulk shippers deserve a discount. Rockefeller argues, who is entitled to better rebates from a railroad? Those who give it 5,000 barrels a day or those who give it 500 barrels or 50 barrels? 
Here's law professor Mark Grady, Donald Trump, and Daniel Jurgen. He organized the, the biggest, the most colossal, the most sophisticated price-fixing arrangement in American history. Negotiating is a real art. It's an art. And a great negotiator is like a great surgeon. And they're, they're very, very rare. You don't see it often. At the end of the 1860s, the oil industry was in big trouble. It was suffering from overproduction so that the price of oil had collapsed. And there was also an incredible overbuilding of refineries. He saw great overcapacity, great inefficiency, and basically the refiners were killing each other, uh, undercutting each other because they weren't making any money. Rockefeller needs to quickly expand his company, and to do that, he needs investors. The problem is, kerosene is getting a bad name. Stories of fuel exploding and burning down homes are on the front page of newspapers across the country, making potential investors skeptical. Due to high demand, many refiners are rushing to market with dangerous kerosene that's extremely volatile. Rockefeller sees the problem as an opportunity and realizes that there's a need to calm the public's fears and provide them with a product they can rely on. Here again is Scott Nelson. The kerosene does not break down. Every other kind of refiner produces something that's partially naphthene, partially uh, this other viscous substance. All, it's all mixed together and then sold as a lantern. That's a recipe for disaster. Once that thing falls over, if it's lit, it'll set a house on fire. John D. Rockefeller has a better product than any other of the refiners in Pittsburgh. Rockefeller names his juggernaut Standard Oil to suggest a safe and reliable product. Here's Steve Wynn. Well, you can certainly understand how Rockefeller could have named his oil company Standard Oil. Pretty ambitious, organic name. He was creating a standard, and uh, it worked. And when we come back, we'll continue this story, John D. Rockefeller's story, here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story, the life story, of John D. Rockefeller. And my goodness, this is not the version you get in school, if you get any version at all. And so we continue with John D. Rockefeller's story. Rockefeller's standard oil kerosene quiets fears and immediately becomes the most sought-after product in the country, bringing in investor after investor. Here's Bert Folsom, professor of history at Hillsdale College. We must ever remember, Rockefeller wrote to one of his partners in 1885, we are refining oil for the poor man, and he must have it cheap and good. With the oil industry still in peril, many independents refused to sell crude to Rockefeller in an attempt to weaken standard oil. Rockefeller is undaunted. To save the industry, 
Rockefeller seeks to buy out his rival refiners who are on life support, and he also offers many of them jobs. Here's grandson David Rockefeller, Mark Cuban, Ron Chernow, and historian Ellen Fitzpatrick. Those people who were forced by his competitive practices to sell out their companies to him were resentful. On the other hand, he always offered them Standard Oil stock or cash. Those who accepted the Standard Oil stock became very wealthy indeed, and I think many of them were very glad that they did it. As far as I know, he did not break any laws. Back then, it was just pure competition. My brain against your brain, my effort against your effort. You just competed. That's the way they looked at business. It was the wild, wild west. And by hook or crook, it was just win or lose and the best win. You know, and it's interesting. I think if you look at the late uh, 19th century, the people who were really building up the country were the, the businessmen and, and not the, the politicians. He honestly believed that he had a calling to make money and that it was a gift that had been bestowed upon him by God, just as some people could sing opera and other people could paint beautifully. He had a particular aptitude for acquiring wealth, and he considered it a God-given gift. From 1859 to 1870, the U.S. output of crude oil rises from 2,000 barrels a year to over 4 million one in ten is produced by Rockefeller. And as the quality of kerosene increases, the price drops from 23 to 7 cents a gallon. Here again is Daniel Jurgen. At the beginning of the 1870s, Rockefeller controlled one-tenth of the refining capacity in the United States. Within nine years, he controlled 90% of the refining capacity in the United States. The Ohio oil man is now the most powerful man in the country, and Rockefeller still tends his faith as carefully as his business. He faithfully attends church every week, teaches Sunday school to the children, visits the sick, weeps with the suffering, and gives freely. But on September 18, 1873, the power of Rockefeller's new empire is tested. What starts out as a cash crisis in Europe quickly spreads to America. Banks start failing, businesses collapse, the economy goes bust, and the country plummets into a deep depression. Here's the vice president of the Brookings Institution, Darrell West. The panic of 1873 was one of our country's worst economic depressions. It lasted for six years and almost brought American capitalism to its knees. By the time the panic is through, one-third of the country's 360 railroad companies have gone bankrupt. Unsure how to prevent a complete collapse, the stock exchange shuts down and stays closed for 10 straight days. As his competition collapses, Rockefeller picks them off, buying out bankrupt oil refining companies for next to nothing. Standard Oil now has a national footprint. Here's Daniel Jurgen in H.W. Brands. The problem was that it was illegal to own refineries in other states. So what he would do is secretly acquire control of the largest or one of the best refineries in a city, use that refinery 
to buy up other refineries in that city, but the real ownership of everything would secretly go back to Standard Oil. He was playing the game of industry, and he was simply better at it than everybody else. He saw the industrial marketplace as a place for the survival of the fittest, and he was fitter than anybody else. Therefore, he survived. Not only that, therefore, he deserved to survive, and they didn't. By the time the Depression is through, Rockefeller has created the largest and first multinational corporate empire in America with a workforce twice the size of the U.S. Army. Standard Oil is so gigantic that it has its own fleet of ships and is a household name around the world. Meanwhile, Rockefeller envisions pipelines as an alternative transport system for oil and begins a campaign to build and acquire them. Rockefeller's workers labor around the clock, blasting through the countryside and laying over a mile and a half of pipeline every day. By the time the pipeline is complete, it's over 4,000 miles long, stretching across Ohio and Pennsylvania and connecting thousands of the world's most lucrative oil wells directly to Rockefeller's refineries. John Rockefeller has finally found a way to eliminate competition, and in the process, he's forever revolutionized the way oil is transported. It's hard for us in the 20th century to remember that when John D. entered the oil industry, there were essentially four different industries. There's oil production, refining, transportation, and marketing, generally populated by different companies, different people, uh, and seen as, as separate industries. His historical function, and indeed the definition of vertical integration, was to take those four and make them into one company. The railroads are beaten, but an invention from Thomas Edison is about to shake standard oil and the kerosene industry to its foundation. In the 1880s, electricity and the light bulb caused kerosene sales to plummet. Edison's development of the light bulb really was a major threat, not immediately, but long run to the oil business, particularly to its urban markets where electricity could be hooked up. So somewhere you could look ahead and say 20, 25 years from then, the oil business was going to be in trouble. But just a few years later came a rescue. It was first in Europe, where the automobile was developed, and then even more so in the United States, where in the 1890s, a number of uh, tinkerers and inventors developed the automobile further, and in particular, one, Henry Ford. Ironically, Henry Ford once worked in Edison's laboratory as a technician, and Ford's automotive company will indeed create a whole new market for petroleum. But in the meantime, Ford's former boss, Thomas Edison, has developed his own car powered not by petroleum, but by electricity. Until as late as 1912, battery-powered electric cars are a common sight in America. They have their own showrooms, garages, and charge-up stations. What ensures the victory of the internal combustion engine is cheap and almost unlimited quantities of oil. And what a story this is. And my goodness, no clean sailing for John D. Rockefeller. Disruption, even then, disruption now in businesses. And they either adapt and change or die. And my goodness, income is the light. There goes kerosene. 
and John D. Rockefeller had to think about something new to do. Something new to do with all of that oil. That one line really struck me. We are refining oil for the poor man. We must make it cheap and good. When we continue more of the life of John D. Rockefeller here on Our American Stories. more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with Our American Stories and the life of John D. Rockefeller. Let's pick up where we last left off. To keep Standard Oil profitable, Rockefeller targets an all-but-worthless byproduct of petroleum that for years has been thrown away. The highly flammable toxic substance is called gasoline, and so far, no one has figured a use for it. Here's Professor Bert Folsom. Other oil refiners dumped oil waste into nearby rivers. That repulsed Rockefeller, who was perhaps the greatest environmentalist of his age. Not only was he a great lover of nature, he was the ultimate recycler. He believed there was a God-given use for every particle in a barrel of oil, and he was determined to find it. After the kerosene had been removed, Rockefeller's staff found uses for the remaining components. The gasoline as fuel, some of the tars for paving, and other byproducts to manufacture paint, varnish, and even anesthetics. The exact properties that make gasoline so dangerous also make it the perfect fuel to power this engine. The efficiency and power of the internal combustion engine quickly make it the standard in factories across the country. But when the engine is put on wheels, creating what is called the horseless carriage, Rockefeller realizes that gasoline is bigger than kerosene. Standard oil is unstoppable. As the 20th century rolls out, Rockefeller is about to come face to face with his biggest challenge to date. From 1902 to 1905, after interviewing legions of Rockefeller's enemies, investigative reporter Ida Tarbell writes and publishes 19 articles for McClure's magazine, demonizing John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. The roots of her eye-for-an-eye expose stem from her childhood. Ida's father lost his independent oil company after refusing to sell it to Rockefeller and accept his offer of Standard Oil stock. Here's David Rockefeller and Ron Chernow on Ida Tarbell. She was very resentful of what it had done for her father because her father had been one of those who had been forced out of business and foolishly as it turned out, didn't accept uh, Standard Oil stock in payment. Had he done so, he would have been much better off. This was uh, a a woman who had a squirt uh, 
settled with, uh, with Standard Oil. And by um, an extraordinary historical coincidence, Ida Tarbell was publishing this series, portraying him as a monster, just as the man in the White House, Teddy Roosevelt, was looking to single out a single notorious trust for an antitrust case in order to make an example of it. He did not hire, that is Standard Oil did not hire its uh, first publicist until 1906, a year after the Ida Tarbell series uh, ended. Uh, today, a corporate executive in a similar situation would probably have a team of 30 or 40 public relations people working around the clock. On a hot, muggy day in May 1911, the Supreme Court justices give John Rockefeller's Standard Oil six months to dissolve itself. What the Rockefeller detractors don't know is that he is celebrating more than any of them. Here again is Mark Grady. When he got the news of the decree, was playing golf with the Catholic priest, and a messenger came out uh, with a slip of paper, and he looked at it and said to the priest, Father, do you have any money? If I were you, I would borrow as much money as you can find and buy Standard Oil stock. The company that fueled the Wright brothers' first flight is broken up into 34 smaller companies that will ironically go on to be corporate giants. Here's Ron Chernow. To give you some idea of the size of that trust, when it was dismantled in 1911, the heirs include what are today Exxon, Mobil, Amoco, Chevron, Conoco, Arco, BP America, Cheesebro Ponds, and two dozen other companies. So I don't know that the business world has ever seen an agglomeration of wealth and power on the scale of Standard Oil. Rockefeller may have suffered a moral defeat, but he is a shareholder in each one of these 34 companies. Ironically, the event that produces the most money for Rockefeller is not his creation of Standard Oil, but its breakup. As a result, his share increases fivefold. Even in defeat, John Rockefeller becomes the richest man in the history of the world. Three years later, he will become the world's first billionaire. Today, Rockefeller is arguably the richest person in history. Rockefeller had always equated charity and philanthropy with his Christian values, writes Phil Anschutz. He often said, God gave me money and he intended to use his good fortune to advance God's work on earth. Rockefeller builds the University of Chicago. He funds Baptist conventions, missionaries, and teams with scientists who discover cures for meningitis, yellow fever, and hookworm. Here's historian Judith Sealander. Senior began very seriously to rethink not just the vehicles, but the purposes of charity. Charity as a way of remaking society and not ameliorating evil. So cure scarlet fever. Don't provide another scarlet fever ward in a children's hospital. Um, find a more productive way of growing corn rather than making a soup kitchen. Uh, he was ahead of his time then, he still is. Rockefeller underwrote colleges for blacks, including the Tuskegee Institute, Morehouse College, and Spelman College. Here again is Ron Chernow. 
Well, you know, the image of John Dee is that he, that he made a pile during his career and then gave away a pile uh, afterwards. If that had been the case, you know, that's a cliché. The businessman, you know, makes a, a bundle and then sanitizes the fortune by giving it to good works. What makes John Dee so much more fascinating and enigmatic and compelling a character is that he was um, making money as fast as he could from the time he was a teenager and giving it away as fast as he could. He was a Baptist. He was tithing as a teenager. He marries into a family called the Spellmans, uh, who were wonderful uh, family. They were not only ardent temperance activists, but they were ardent abolitionists who had been conductors on the Underground Railroad. They'd had Sojourner Truth in the house. And then Rockefeller goes on to found Spellman College to educate freed uh, female slaves. And so there's no question that he felt deeply about abolitionism. He's creating huge philanthropic um, institutions throughout his career, not publicizing them. Rockefeller saw no place for showering his children with what he and his wife saw as character and virtue debilitating wealth and luxury. Well, you know, it's interesting. He, um, being a very puritanical sort, he was haunted by the corrupting influence of uh, wealth, so that even though the children grew up on these estates, in certain cases of several thousand uh, um, uh, acres, he had them on very strict allowances. One of the most interesting details that I discovered during the research was that John D. Rockefeller Jr., who was the only son, uh, the youngest of four children, said that until the age of eight, he wore only female clothes. In the interview, this was a private interview, the interviewer said uh, to him, oh, you only wear female clothes, was that just because the style of the time was that little boys, you know, wore dresses? He said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. We all wore hand-me-downs, and the three older siblings were all girls. And so the hand-me-downs that were coming down to me were all, you know, dresses and, and skirts. This is how frugally they were brought up. So that John Dee tried to recreate his own threadbare childhood with the children, even though he was en route to becoming the richest man in the world because he wanted them to learn the value of a dollar. You know, and he looked at all these other children of the, the grandees of the Gilded Age, and he saw them, you know, becoming philanderers and alcoholics and everything else, and he was determined that these children were going to be thrifty and responsible. And to a remarkable extent, he succeeded, because you see a lot of famous families burn out after a generation or two. The Rockefellers have managed to, to go on being a significant force in business politics uh, and philanthropy in this country. John D. Rockefeller dies peacefully in his sleep on May 23, 1937. His assets equal 1.5% of America's GDP. In modern terms, his net worth exceeds $350 billion. And that was just half of John D.'s fortune. The other half, he gave away. I'm Greg Hengler. And this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler for this work, and thanks to all the contributors. And what a life story. And so much, well, I learned a lot listening, and I'm sure you did too. This is the kind of history that schools should be teaching. They don't. And that's why we do what we do here, and we always thank Hillsdale College. You heard from Bert Folsom in that piece, a professor at Hillsdale. And all of our history segments are brought to us by Hillsdale College. And you can go to hillsdale.edu to learn more about your own country, about the Constitution, about literature, 
again, about all the things that matter in life, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And my goodness, the life story of John D. Rockefeller had its ups and downs. I was most taken by that line. He made money as fast as he could make it, and he gave it away, well, as fast as he could give it away. And that story is often not told either about the rich philanthropic tradition of the wealthy in this great country. And there you have it, the life of John D. Rockefeller, here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. This is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger. And this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and father. I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique, but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs, but it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic, or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant. Either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, After my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. 
He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language, that trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed at his number one duty to me to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, 
doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity, not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now we bring you the story of Game to Grow, a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons and Dragons as a tool in therapy. Here to explain what they do are Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Um, as we talk to, to people kind of around the country and especially people who are not not in the gaming or um, or kind of geek um, atmosphere or culture. Oftentimes they assume Dungeons and Dragons is a video game. So here's, here's how I usually describe it. Um, there's one person who acts as the sort of head storyteller and referee of the game. And they know most of the rules and they can explain most of the rules to the game. And that person's usually referred to as the dungeon master or the game master. And they sit at the head of the table and they describe stuff that's happening in the world. And then everybody else who's sitting at the table um, is uh, just playing a character in that world, a single character. And they have a piece of paper that tells them things like how strong their character is or what kind of equipment they have or what kinds of abilities they have. And this all takes place in a fantasy world, much like Lord of the Rings, where there are swords and bow and arrow and uh, full suits of armor of course, magical spells. And the dungeon master might describe something like, all of you have uh, decided to venture into this dark cave where you can see that there are, there's mildew growing on the walls, there's mold, um, and there is a um, dripping coming from the stalactites in the ceiling. You're here because you've heard of a tremendous treasure um, that apparently was lost in these caves a long time ago, and you've decided you're going to go after that treasure. Maybe even you have a map to help guide you through. And as you travel further down into the cave, it's very dark, um, but you can see that the walls have been carved out like somebody has carved them with man-made tools. And you travel deeper and deeper into this cave system until finally you open up into a, a large room and in this large room, you can see um, across the way is a door on the other side of a very large gap. Um, and the gap seems to stretch very far down into the ground. But the thing that really catches your eye is that hanging above the gap, uh, clinging for dear life, appears to be a small gnome man. And he's uh, hanging from a rope. And he sees you as you walk in and he uh, shouts to you, 
Oh my gosh! Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy somebody finally showed up. Please help me. And at this point in time, uh, the dungeon master then says, what do you do? And all of the players at the table get to decide what their character does to sort of overcome this this challenge or this situation. So they might do all sorts of things. A uh, warrior character might um, leap across the pit and try to grab the gnome uh, to save him from, from falling down into the pit. A, um, a ranger or an archer character um, might shoot a bow with a, with a rope tied to it and tightrope walk across the, the pit and, and um, save the gnome that way. Or a wizard character who can cast magic spells might uh, use a magic spell that can pull the rope and get it swinging so the gnome might be able to jump off. And no matter what they do, they're going to do it together because all the players at the table are all working on a team together. They're not competing with each other. Instead, they are working cooperatively towards a common goal. And in this case, the common goal of the game is not the most points. It's not even to achieve a particular goal. Even in this case um, of the example I gave, you're not trying to get treasure. You're trying to tell a story. And that's one of the really brilliant things about um, games like Dungeons and Dragons is that the point of the game is to tell a story. And because that's really the goal of the game, because that's really the place that you're trying to get to, everybody at the table might have a different idea for what that story looks like, but they know they're all working towards that goal. Um, and that's what really turns it into a, a brilliant and amazing experience as the Dungeon Master continues to describe things in the world, continues to describe whether or not the player's um, uh, attempts to, to do those things are successful, um, and the players get to roll dice to help add randomness and, and help determine the, the outcomes of their action and get to really have the most open-ended gaming experience you can possibly have where they can decide and, and try anything that comes to their mind in a very loose um, uh, rule system that allows you to be very flexible with the outcomes of it. A lot of game masters, to to my chagrin, um, I don't like the fact that they often see themselves as adversaries of the players. There's oftentimes an antagonistic relationship where the game master uh, sees themselves as needing to challenge, and there's like a ha-ha, your characters are going to die today because my monsters are going to be stronger than them. And we don't do anything like that. Um, our goal as game masters is very much to challenge the players, but also to keep them engaged and keep them excited. So we do that by challenging them the right amount, um, building on their ideas while they build on our space, um, on, on our ideas, because we are uh, we're co-creating co and collaborating in this in this game where that's oftentimes, uh, for many of our players, the first time an adult has said, what do you care about? What do you want to do? So then the players now see an adult who is playing with them, really playing with them in a way that is very healing to a lot of a lot of participants, especially ours, who are identified at school as as oftentimes being an outcast. People tell them what to do all the time, very rarely say, what do you care about? What is something that you want out of life? And so this is an opportunity where they can push boundaries and see what happens when they take up space and then have an adult be excited about the choices that they're making. We started doing what we're doing right now using Dungeons and Dragons in therapeutic social skills groups largely by accident. Adam and I both started playing Dungeons and Dragons when we were pretty young. 
uh, got a lot out of it. We played games with our friends. We got to use all the uh, all the mechanics of the games and the storytelling of the game to really get a lot of social outlet when we were kids. I, Adam Davis, was um, studying drama therapy because I had wanted to use the the drama games and experiences that I had had as a performer and then as a drama teacher to help kids. Um, help kids become more into themselves and learn about themselves and, and how they can interact with the world better. And so Adam and I met in grad school and I started picking up um, an after school program that was a Dungeons and Dragons program for quirky kids who needed a little, uh, little guidance and social support. And I took the game over and realized that Dungeons and Dragons is actually a, a perfect uh, modality for sit-down drama therapy. So we uh, started using the game a little more intentionally and then um, just barely scratching the surface. And then when um, my facilitator at the time left to go pursue other interests, there was an opening and I knew Adam from grad school. So we had kind of like done that thing where we uh, we, we brought uh, some things from our personal lives as sort of a get-to-know-you activity in the very beginning of the quarter and both Adam and I brought dice we knew from across the room that we were both named Adam. We both liked dice and games, and so we knew we were kindred spirits. Uh, so um, we, we had that great moment, that sort of nerd nod uh, <laughs> from, from across the room. Um, and then uh, after the class, uh, Adam Davis came up to me and he said, hey, do you want to get paid to come and play improv games in Dungeons and & Dragons? And I was like, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds like the best. Um, and at the time, the group was really just a, a sort of uh, drop-in social group. Um, and then when we came in, we started saying, there's a lot we can do with this. And we were both in a state of uh, sort of um, master's program um, desire to, to want to use all the amazing theories and all the amazing stuff that we were learning. And we um, really had this tremendous opportunity to start diving in saying, oh my gosh, we're, this, this is exactly what we can be using all of these amazing theories, all these amazing things that we're learning, and we can apply them right here, but through the game of Dungeons & Dragons that we grew up playing. And when we return, we're going to hear more from Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Game to Grow, and it's a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons & Dragons as a tool in therapy. And, my goodness, I never thought of anything like this before. But by the way, people who naysay and talk down so many of the games that young boys and girls play, I don't think see the virtues a lot of these games and a lot of the social skills that can be learned playing them, and particularly Dungeons and Dragons because of its creative space and how in the end the world was created and in the end dictated by the actors and players themselves. So when we come back, more of this story, Adam John's story, and Adam Davis's story. Two pals who figured out a way to help people at risk, people in need. Game to Grow, their story here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories and the story of Game to Grow. And by the way, they hail from Kirkland, Washington. And as so many of our stories do, they hail from all over this great country. And some are quirky stories, some are big, bold stories about founders and Henry Ford. But these are some of our favorites. They're not big, bold stories. They're better than that. They're small, risk-taking, quirky stories. They're happening all around us every day. If you have a story like it, something somebody's doing to impact their neighborhood, their neighbor even, just that story, one person helping one person, we're as interested in that here in Our American Stories as Henry Ford's story or George Washington's. We treat them all the same. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now back to the story of Adam Davis and Adam Johns and how one of their childhood treasures turned into a grad school exercise and ultimately a full-time occupation in therapy. We got our first group going. The parents saw the outcomes. The parents started talking to other parents, inviting us to speak at other engagements. And then all of a sudden, the, the ball started to roll. And then before we knew it, we have continued to grow. And we are now full-time therapeutic game masters and executive directors of game to grow We have a, a sort of a, a theory at game to grow where players play the characters that they need to play. So we have a lot of players who, like I said, are socially isolated, who don't have a lot of social aptitude, and they don't really have a lot of experience being charismatic or confident, but they pick characters who are aspirational. A lot of players come in and they, they pick characters who are military leaders, who have on their character sheet that they are very charismatic, that people believe in them. And so we know right away that that's something that the, that these young people want to want to play with and want to explore. Um, we have players that come in choosing to play characters that are very similar to themselves, lone wolves who are very isolated in the game. And then we can help that character grow, and thus the player grow. And that lone wolf character who wants to go off and solve every problem by themselves, now we put them in a situation in the game where their character needs to rely on somebody else. Because Dungeons & Dragons is a fellowship game. It's a game where every character has a unique and special ability that, that makes them special. And that's a great life lesson, is that you can't do everything by yourself. And people are going to rely on you, and you are going to rely on people. And here's what that looks like to ask for help. And here's how good it feels to be able to be the person who can step up and help out the team. In one particular instance uh, where a player really made a choice that I was not expecting, um, the characters had all made their way through this dungeon, and they came up into a room where there was, um, on in one corner of the room, a massive troll of legend uh, who had been imprisoned there. And in the other corner of the room was a series of three unlabeled switches. And uh, across the other side of the room was a metal door that was closed. And it quickly was explained to the players that um, one of the three unlabeled switches would open the door on the other side of the room, allowing them to progress further into their dungeon. Um, and the other two switches, when pulled together, would release the, the massive troll of legend upon the players, but also upon the world itself. And usually how this works is that it's sort of a, um, an interesting uh, challenge where the players can talk to the troll, they can figure out uh, is the troll lying to us about which switch is which, and, and it's sort of a mix of a puzzle and a social challenge. 
In this case, we had one player who uh, had just joined the group, and the player had described their character as being impulsive and having um, a lot of uh, hyperactivity. And it was an appropriate character for that player to play because that, that player also struggled with those exact same challenges. And that player said, um, I run across the room and I pull all three switches at once. And I've run that scenario several times. That was the first time anybody had ever just decided to pull all three switches. So all of a sudden I had to decide, okay, well, what what's going to happen here? And what are the consequences of, of effectively just running ahead? And all the other players at the table had gotten out like graph paper and they were getting ready to like solve the puzzle. And they just stood and stared slack-jawed at their teammate who, who might have just done them all in. And what I said was the troll runs across the room and he picks up uh, the impulsive player's character, getting ready to eat them whole. And all the other characters, I said, you're, you're, you're the players at the table, I said, you, you can leave now. The door is open. Uh, but if you leave, you'll be leaving your teammate to be eaten by this, this massive troll of legend. And you'll also be leaving the troll to, to wreak havoc upon the world. You need to decide what your characters would do here. They are heroes in this world. What would they do? And they turned and they debated it with each other and they eventually decided that they would help their teammate. And so they enticed the troll back into the, the cage um, and re-imprisoned the troll. And at the end of that session, we always do a checkout at the end of every session. And at the end of that session, there um, the players all checked out with each other and the impulsive player said, I'm really glad that you guys helped me out there because my character is really impulsive and it's clear that they're going to have to learn how to be less impulsive. And I'm hoping that your characters will help teach them that. And one of the other players at the table also said in the checkout, I'm super glad that you did that because we're all here to basically learn how to navigate this space, how to learn these skills and be better at this. And your character doing that helped make me feel like, like I really belong here. I'm, I struggle with some of the same challenges, and it helped me feel like I belong. And it was an amazing moment for them to realize that they're all in a similar place, and they've all struggled to make friends, to connect with people. Um, and this is a place where that doesn't matter, where they can all get along and where they can m maybe have missteps but they can feel a sense of acceptance here. Part of our mission is to get more games into more communities around the country and around the world. We have traveled and we've done presentations and trainings for therapists who want to get involved. So what we've seen is that a lot of therapists don't have a lot of experience with role-playing games. And then the big barrier to entry, they, they hear the stories, they get excited, they want to participate in this emerging uh, intervention strategy, but they've, they're under-experienced in a game like Dungeons & Dragons. So one of our missions is to create a product that they can then take and it'll help them get started much faster. This project is called Critical Core. It is a beginner box for therapeutic game masters to start helping their participants almost right out of the box. So it's got a really simplified rule set. It's got a facilitator's guide for how to facilitate the game to be a positive pro-social environment with all the improv and all the stuff that we have added on as uh, incorporating the play therapy and drama therapy that we have into our game. But then also it's got a very specific module design where the storylines are 
directly related to a real world areas of social growth. So we might have the room that fills up with lava and that's a way to build frustration tolerance. Or the players have to go and get past a guard and that guard might have a slightly downturned mouth that looks like a frown and then we can work on theory of mind skills and perspective taking where now we can talk about uh, nonverbal social cues and the fact that that guard being sad or upset has nothing to do with you. You have no idea why he's making that facial expression, but in order to get past the guard into the next room in the dungeon or in the castle, we have to be able to relate to him, understand him, and communicate with him. So the, those three components going into Critical Core, uh, I think, will really be how we can get this project out there. We, like Microsoft's vision of a computer on every desk, we want a game in every desk, a game in every school a game in every hospital, a game in every clinic and therapist's office. Uh, that is our mission. So we don't want people to just game more. We want people to game better. Don't just game. Game to grow. And what an interesting story. At first, when I was reading about it, I thought, why should I care? But as so often happens here on this show, you start to hear the story and you go, my goodness, what an interesting way to do therapy therapeutic game masters and it just well it makes sense and we've been telling adam johns and adam davis's story great job on this robbie robbie just sort of bumped into it these guys are in kirkland washington and we love to tell stories from all over this great country big ones small ones again adam johns and adam davis game to grow and i love what they said don't just game more game better this is our american stories Our American Stories, and now it's time for another story of a song, one of our favorite segments here on Our American Stories. And this one features two musicians who were reputed to be seeking perfection. But as guitarist Dean Parks said, quote, perfection is not what they were after. They're after something that you wanted to listen to over and over again. Let's take a listen to what Greg Hengler has for us today. They were hipsters before the term was coined, which would make them the real deal. It's widely considered that over-engineering a track ultimately ends in failure. Not here. In an age before Pro Tools, Steely Dan engineered some of the best analog production ever. So exacting, so tight, their style was a sophisticated and seamless fusion of jazz and pop music. Their style became known as Yacht Rock, and Steely Dan docked a fleet of remarkable hits. The band consisted of just two core members. Donald Fagan grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, just a 20-minute drive to New York City through the Lincoln Tunnel, and Walter Becker, who grew up in Queens. Here's Walter Becker. Your everlasting summer, you can see it fading fast. So you grab a piece of something that you think is gonna last. The original Steely Dan band was formed in 1971. There were five of us, and Donald and I wrote the songs. Are you reeling in the east? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the teeth? Have you had enough? 
We toured for a while to support the first couple of albums, but we didn't really like it, so we stopped in 1974 and didn't tour again for 19 years. By the time uh, we released Asia, the other members of the band uh, were gone except for Denny Dias, and uh, we'd replaced them with session musicians and some of our favorite soloists. Here's Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and fellow session contributors for the Asia album providing a fascinating glimpse into one of those recordings, Peg, on track four. Drummer Rick Morata recounts what many consider one of the greatest drum groups ever recorded. I feel nothing but pride from that track. It was one of the best tracks I ever played on. As far as drums were going at that time, it was like if you had a club in your right hand and a club in your left hand and clubs for feet, you could uh, <clears throat> play. I had just opened my hi-hat a hair every couple of beats with what I was playing with my right hand on the hi-hat, and it created this little sound. Now, I've done that, but never ever heard it on the record that I had done, because engineers and sounds at the time, you know, it was, it was one of those things where it's a nuance, and those things didn't exist. Here's Fagan and Becker in the studio playing with the soundboard while admiring the sneaky bass stylings of Chuck Rainey. As I remember, this was kind of a written bass part, but he fixed it up in his own... Parts of it were written. Right. This part was written. Mm. This verse part. Just a great musician slapping and also fretting with his thumb. Chuck had a really unique... Here's the chorus, which was... A... You'd have to ask Chuck about the thumb business, you know. They didn't want me to slap, I think mainly, mainly because at that time, slapping was just becoming popular and it was on a lot of records. However, my me being a player, I think there are some songs that slapping sounds good. And no matter who you are, you want to keep in the fold of what's happening. Uh, Peg, uh, uh, that bridge there just seemed to be a slapping thing for me. They said, well, no, play with your fingers, uh, you know, something like that. And then... You play these songs so many times that after a while, I remember just turning just a little bit, either this way or this way, and putting up a uh, partition, and uh, they were about that high. And of course, sitting in a much lower chair, and uh, I remember, you know, slapping. They never knew it went down. They never knew it, except afterwards, you can tell there was a difference in that bridge. I'll put in the keyboards again here so you got like here's your little rhythm section little trio here Rick Murata, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting that, that I'm listening to now is that you don't really hear in a, in a lot of groups that you hear there's a lot of doubling between the uh, bass and the kick drum and you can hear here that the, the kick drum is all sort of syncopated it's not really you know what I mean? It's not doubling so much the strong beats that the bass is playing. 
You gotta love them. But it's not like you go in there and you're just really good friends and you'll play and you'll try to get into it and they'll say, yeah, that's really good. And then the next day somebody else is doing it, a whole other band. It wasn't like they played musical chairs with the guys in the band. They played musical bands. A whole band would go and a whole incredible other band would come in. We never came up with a band of our own that we felt was the right combination of guys, that it was stable. It was just me and Walter. You hear somebody in a record and you say, wow, listen to this, this guy's a great solo, so let's have him come in and, you know, what would he be good on, you know, what would suit his style, you know, that's the fun. This tune, I think, is infamous among studio players in that we hired a couple of guitar players, you know, to play the solo, and, and it wasn't quite what we were looking for uh, until mm -hmm. we got through three or four, five players. Six, six, six players, or seven, six you or know. Six or seven, eight players. I don't know, soloed or... Oh, there it is. Let's check this out. Put it, go back, and let's hear it in the track. Probably the, the the last guy to try it before Jay did it. Here's another one. And what is that? Some kind of little envelope filter thing he's got going there on his guitar? Didn't you hear that someone did this to you? And then finally, um, Jay Graydon came in and did it with no um, difficulty whatsoever. Yeah, it's been a kind of a Polynesian. Sort of prefigured my own later resonance in Hawaii. Here's the great Michael McDonald. all in 3D. I had worked with them enough to kind of know what I was in for, you know. <laughs> certain words that they just wanted to hear a certain way that. You know, normally under normal normal circumstances, people wouldn't. You know, they kind of. This is the words. You hear the parts. Uh, you sing it, and you know uh, that's the phrasing. But for those guys, uh, the phrasing could have such nuance. You know that. Uh, you know, singing a line like half as much as. You'd think, oh, you know, how many different ways can you say it in that phrasing rhythmically, and you know. But it would be, it would come down to such fine points like uh, pronunciation and uh, exact rhythmic, you know, uh, vibrato, no vibrato, you know, uh, things like that. And so it was always real challenging. He did a couple parts on, on top of himself. All in 3D, foreign movie. Let's check out his high part just to embarrass him. Cool. Back to you. Okay. Back to you. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. There it is. 
doesn't sound like much of a part but the harmonies were so close that um, that was a, a real learning experience for me to sing a chord you know part by part with myself that you know when you're going back into to sing that next harmony it's so close to the note you're singing it it was just uh, real hard for me to discern that interval and, and keep it in pitch you know We had a pretty specific idea about this, uh, how these background parts would work and the sort of swing band rhythmic approach and how we wanted it phrased and so on. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. And so many different ways songs come to be. Some it's spontaneous. Some, my goodness, over and over again, laborious. Fastidious, and that's Steely Dan, the ultimate studio band. The story of a song, Peg, and how it came to be here on Our American Stories. 